Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking.、Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and、uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps—you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The only thing sad about a great night of theater is its evanescence. When it's over, it's over. You can remember the performance forever, of course, but you can't recreate that virgin sensation, that almost numbing exhilaration of witnessing something new and different and exciting in the theater for the very first time. So there was a lot of reminiscing Thursday night when 1,472 friends of a chorus line gathered in Schubert Alley for a reception preceding the musical's record-breaking 3,389th performance. While everyone was looking forward to having grand fun at the gala, everyone was also conceding in advance that the past could not be recaptured. But two and a half hours later. As the same audience poured back into Schubert Alley, no one was jaded anymore. No one was talking about old memories. What people were saying instead is simply this: they had rarely, if ever, seen anything as exciting in a Broadway theater as the 3,389th performance of a chorus line. Perhaps the most extraordinary of Mr. Bennett's touches came as the show's outset. The introductory number "I Hope I Get It" was at first performed by the current New York company, but at the climax, when the dancers retreat into the blackness to fetch their resumes and publicity photos, Mr. Bennett, in a lightning-fast cinematic dissolve, replaced them with another cast. As this identically costumed new cast marched forward to the white line downstage, photos in front of their faces, a white banner dropped bearing the legend "The Original Company," and as the audience gasped. That company lowered their photos, revealing the performers we hadn't seen in eight years. Some looked as we remembered, some of them looked older, and some, distressingly, we couldn't remember at all. The effect was chilling because it reminded us that the anonymous backstage stories dramatized in a chorus line are echoed in real life. Though many of the show's original cast members have successful careers, none of them became Broadway stars. What most of them did for a chorus line in 1975. And before and since, they did for love. Frank Rich, New York Times, October first, nineteen eighty-three. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today we are talking about the musical *A Chorus Line*, which was a listener request by both Mauricio and Richard. 
I myself have been thinking of this episode for <laughs> like well over a year. So much has been documented about this show and its creation. I wasn't even really sure how to approach it. Uh, there's a book called On the Line that was written by the entire cast. So I'm not going to ask just one of them to come on my little podcast and dredge up all of the joy and trauma of creating the show. There's another book all about Michael Bennett by Ken Mandelbaum that's really great. An incredible documentary film called Every Little Step. By the way, I'll put all the links to these in my show notes. But there is honestly nothing I can add to that from from a, a documentation standpoint. But I went back to my mission statement for a musical theater podcast, and and that is to reveal the cultural and emotional impact of these shows. And one of the greatest impacts that A Chorus Line gave us, I believe, is the story of dancers, right? Bringing them into the limelight, realizing that these are people, they're not just nameless faces, uh, doing everything exactly the same. So during this episode, I am going to have four different guests. Each one has a unique story and relationship to the show. And with them, we are going to look at a chorus line uh, through the characters on the line. So first up, and you guys, <laughs> if this isn't proof that it's a small world after all, I don't know what is. If you listen to our amazing Chicago episode, and if you didn't, highly recommend you do so, you may remember me telling a story about being an LDS missionary in Texas, and one of the members of the church found out I was a musical theater guy, and um, and long story short, I ended up carrying around a signed headshot of one of the original cell block tango girls from the revival for about two years. <laughs> that incredible actor's name is Caitlin Carter, and I can't freaking believe she's talking to me right now. Hi, Caitlin Carter. Hello. How are you? <laughs> this is we're talking. <laughs> so trippy. Um, so, so sister, Mc, uh, sister Tammy, like sister Tammy. contacted you. Did you know so who I... it was going to? She she did give me a little bit of a background on you and, and said that you would just so appreciate it. And and I'm always happy. I mean, you know, oh, we all have to pay so it forward generous. and inspire. Yes. And uh, and when she told me about you, I said, absolutely. I, you know, that is not a problem. And I'm happy to do it. And uh, if it continues to keep your journey inspired, I love it. Well, it was. I mean, because when you're on your mission, you... <clears throat> You don't listen to any music. You don't watch any television, right? Nothing. So my lifelines to my passion, my art form, were my mom sending me printouts of who was nominated for Tony Awards each year and your headshot. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know how everybody would have felt about you having my headshot with you that whole time. I did not. Okay. Full disclosure, I did not show it to any of my companions for fear of tempting them into something that they weren't ready for. Exactly. <laughs> good, good, good choice. <laughs> now, your career just kind of embodies more different dance styles than almost any person I've heard of. And I yeah. can't wait to talk about that. Sure. But before we go there, can you tell us your dancer story? How did sure. you discover dance? My background story. So I grew up uh, and I'm from San Francisco, California. I grew up in the Bay Area. My mom was an aspiring actor and director. She did a lot of community theater in the Bay Area, and so I kind of got sucked into that. And she had always wanted to be a dancer. Here we go, living our parents' <laughs> dreams. Um, so she enrolled me in ballet and piano and voice lessons. So I really, uh, oh, and cello. Oh, God, I hated cello. But anyway. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know, one year. Um, 
So I loved ballet and ballet is sort of all encompassing. It takes over your life if you get serious about it. So around 13, I got very serious. Everything dropped by the wayside. I ended up at San Francisco Ballet. I studied the School of American Ballet in New York. And then I ended up going to the North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston-Salem, North Carolina for my final high school years as a ballet major. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then um, out of high school, I moved to Philadelphia and I worked with the Pennsylvania Ballet, and then I got a contract with a company in San Antonio, Texas. And that company sadly went under. And my parents, my father especially, wanted me to go to college. You know, that was my parents both had been college graduates. They went to Stanford, and it was important to them. And I just thought, you know, it's time. I'm, I'm going to go to college. And then I ended up going to Rice. And while I was at Rice University in Houston, Texas, uh, I worked with some concert companies on the side because I still love dancing. Couldn't let it go. It's hard. Once you're a dancer, you're always a dancer. Sure. And uh, my name got around, and I ended up being asked to do a production at Theater Under the Stars, Kismet. They had a Gorgeous. dance solo. Yeah, they, I was Princess Samaras. I did this big solo. And the producers there said, hey, you know, why don't you come do the whole season next year? And I was still in college, but they worked around my schedule. And I was fortunate enough at the time, this was <clears throat> the 80s, to um, <laughs> do some productions for Susan Stroman and Rob Marshall. They were early oh in gosh. their careers. Wow. And they came down to do some regional productions. And both of them said to me, you know, you should come to New York. You're, you're good. And so I finished my degree. In the summer of 1992, I, I made the big move. I got married that year. And then my husband and I, you know, we decided to move to New York. And wow. within four weeks, of getting there, auditioning, auditioning, I got my first Broadway show. And I didn't even realize it. I Get was just out. auditioning for everything and anything, as any good performer does uh, in the beginning, and just ended up for auditioning for Randy Skinner for a Broadway show called Ain't Broadway Grand. Tap legend. Yes, that legendary show, Ain't Broadway Grand. <laughs> Um, you know, and it was a wonderful experience for me. I was so excited and I got to meet so many people. I managed to get an agent out of it. Unfortunately, yeah, it didn't run very long as many Broadway shows don't. That's part of the experience of being a performer. By the end of that year, I booked the first national crazy for you, went out for a year, Aww. came back and, uh, Rob Marshall remembered me and he cast me in Victor Victoria. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to the crazy few, that was Susan Stroman. So, exactly. you know, relationships, connections, so important in the business. And, um, and then Victor Victoria led to Chicago. And then I ended up doing uh, a Broadway musical called Swing after that. And then I did another Broadway musical that didn't last very long called Bells Are Ringing with Faith Prince. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've been very, very blessed. And I went from one Broadway show to the next. It was pretty wonderful. But, you know, it's as I always tell young performers, you know, you just want to really hone all those skills talking about chorus line and triple threats. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the people that have lots of tools in their belt, you're going to work a lot, uh, a lot more. So you just really want to hone all those things. But yeah, yeah. The, the, the more crayons you have in your box, the more pictures you can color, right? I love it. Yes, I love that. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. I like that better than steal my uh, tool belt. <laughs> <laughs> Now, A Chorus Line is such a special show, and in order to understand it, <clears throat> you kind of need to understand the era in which it was born. Yeah. You know, we often talk about the end of the Golden Age being around 1968, mm -hmm. and yeah, I guess like 
pre-1968, that's the time when so many classic musicals were written. But probably more accurately, it's when there were so many musicals being written, period. Right. Yeah, there was just so much so work. So it was just such a prolific period. I mean, they were... Right. I hate to say it, they were cranking them out. And they were cranking Absolutely. out really good stuff. I mean, yeah. So yeah, it yeah, wasn't yeah. mediocre stuff. It was good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it, it got to a point when... They went from 84 shows a season to 54 shows a season. And that is a huge blow to the performers who were going from show to show and, and kind of living what we used to call the gypsy life. That term is not used anymore. But the idea is that you didn't necessarily have a home. You were going from show to show to show. Correct. And people I've worked with, like Cheetah Rivera and Ann Ranking, they talk about that period. Annie talks about how... She said it wasn't uncommon to do two shows, three shows a season. You would just bounce wow. from one to the next. Now, with less work and then, I guess, drugs really becoming a thing, the, the theater district in Manhattan was getting run down and unsafe, and honestly, Broadway dancers were getting sick of it. <laughs> yeah. So now enter two dancers, Michonne Peacock and uh, Tony, Tony Stevens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they call up a bunch of their dancer colleagues to come late at night, I think to a like a yoga studio in January yeah. of 1974, to dance and talk and figure out how they could collaborate on something, right? Maybe yes. it was going to be a dance troupe or a theater group or whatever it was. They wanted to make something happen. Create work for themselves, create something for themselves. Yes, exactly. So in addition to all these talented friends, they also knew they needed a little artistic muscle in their back pocket. Mm -hmm. So they asked legendary director, choreographer Michael Bennett to also attend. A lot of them had worked for him in Seesaw. Yes. As well as other shows. Now, little did they know that he had been thinking about doing a project that celebrated dancers as yes. well. Yes. He respected dancers. He knew they had stories to tell. So he shows up. He brings a recorder. And tapes a conversation that that ends up being an all-nighter. Yeah, right. everybody uh, sits basically in a circle on some pillows, and they share their very personal stories and discuss what it means to be a dancer. Well, and you know, and the beauty of that, I mean, there there's so many pluses, there are some minuses, but the beauty of that was that they were with people that they knew, right, and right, it was right. an intimate setting. So they they shared sometimes extremely intimate things about themselves and their journey, which I don't know if you would have gotten that if you hadn't done it that way, um, mm. you know, because it's, you know, we all have had those late night conversations with friends that you talk about certain things that you might not normally do. So it was a perfect setup to get that really intimate material that they ended up with. Um, yeah, that is I, so I, true. I mean, you're exactly right, especially in, in terms of theater families, mm -hmm. you get to know each other intimately without maybe even knowing anything about the other person, right? All of a sudden, you're responsible for lifting them up in the air and not yes. having them crash to their death. There's trust. There's You, you, yes. you trust your, your, your theater family. You trust your show family. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. and I will never share, you know, the, the dressing room conversations I've had with my fellow show sisters, you know, in Chicago. I will never share those stories, <laughs> ever. Because the that was a trusted space, but we talked about everything, and you know it would probably blow some people's minds. But that it, he did, whether they realized it or not, they were doing that. They were creating that really safe, intimate space and that trusting space. 
So this conversation ended up being emotional and and powerful and funny. And that evening and those tapes eventually became the impetus and in some instances the word-for-word lines and lyrics in a chorus line. Absolutely. Now, when were you first introduced to the show? Well, yeah, the first... Well, okay, here's a fun fact. I saw the first national of chorus line. I think it was 1975, 76. It came to San Francisco. You know, I wish I'd saved the program. I didn't. And I'm wondering who I saw as Cassie. I don't know. Now, in those days, sometimes the original company would actually go out on the road. They Uh, wanted to see America. They wanted America to see them. Exactly, exactly. And and my mom did get, I had a t-shirt and she bought me the album. And I would get my little hairbrush and I would run around our family room and put on the Chorus Line album. Um, So that was my first exposure. Wow. Yeah. And so fast forward to 1989, I got cast at the summer season of Music Theater of Wichita. Wayne Bryan, and uh, he was running that. And he knew one of the producers at Tuts. And that producer said, hey, I've got a pretty talented babe down here. And so he came (laughs) down and held an audition and I booked the part of Val. And then uh, the next year, Theater Under the Stars, Tuts, also decided to do a chorus line. Oh. And, you know, and I wanted Val. I had done it. I was good. But that director cast me as Judy. So I ended up doing oh. Judy, which wow. I was like, I know. Talk about Complete. a shift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will tell you, uh, so the Cassie for the production I did at Tuts was Cheryl Clark. Okay. Cheryl Clark was our Cassie, and she was one of the Cassies that uh, had been cast by Michael Bennett. She had done it in New York. She had done the wow. first national tour. And she was just a wonderful woman. And I would sit in the wings and watch her do the Cassie dance, of course, and everything, and, and just try to soak it all in. And I remember we were sitting in the in the makeup room one day, and she turned to me. And she said, you know, you should watch this dance. You're going to do this part someday. Huh. And... Um, it's it's that's another wonderful thing about our business is people passing it forward. And Cheryl was very generous. She said, you really need to watch me. And so fast forward, I was doing Bells Are Ringing on Broadway, and I got a call to audition for Biork for a national tour of Course Line. Biork Lee, yeah, you're going to hear about her so much throughout this episode, people. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, my agent said they want to bring you in for Cassie. And um, it ended up between me and Darcy Roberts Magino. Down I love Darcy Roberts. I know. Oh, who my is, gosh. Who I also, fun fact, she had been at Music Theater of Wichita that summer I did Chorus Line. She and her sister... Oh and, and she had been doing some of the productions, but she, uh, we're sitting there and by arc, I mean, the, the audition was grueling. She put us yeah. through our paces. You know, we had to sing, do the monologue, do the number a million times. And then they asked us to go on the hallway and Darcy and I knew each other. And Darcy's just a great girl. She's wonderful, she super talented. Fantastic. And, you know, and she looked at me and she said, you sound amazing because Darcy really is a great singer and I'm, yeah. I'm a good singer. But she said to me, but she said, you know, you dance it so much better than I. I bet you're going to get this. And I said, you know, they're going to be good with either one of us. We're both capable. I always say that to people. When you get down to the final callback, you're more than qualified. It, yeah. You know, it just becomes subjective at that point. And I, I booked it. 
And, uh, you know, I was thrilled. Um, it was a fast and furious rehearsal period. And, uh, and it was, it was, it's a hard role. <laughs> Seriously, though. It, it is. You stand there the entire show. Yes. And then have to do the most difficult dance yeah. in all of musical theater history. Yes. You shift your Which... hip back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so I mean, true. Standing on the line is one of the most difficult parts of the show. It, it truly is. And I always love doing the show because it does speak to you so personally because it's your life. Yeah. And so we all know it so well. It's easy to tap into. You know, a chorus line has such an unusual creative process. It, yes. it's, it was very naturalistic, very raw, very scary, very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And... It ruined some people's lives, but it's also why it's so emotional when you like you can't see it without honestly feeling the sweat, blood and tears. Absolutely. That that went into it. And that's what made it such a benchmark musical. It was real. It was raw. And it opened that little door into what our lives are like. (laughs) Now, very quickly, let's talk about Michael Bennett. Okay. Because he's a member of the generation of great manipulators. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Who else is in that group? Wow. (laughs) Jerome Ro- Jerome Robbins, yeah, Bobby Fosse. I, yes. you know, love. You know, it, it's that. It's that. I don't want to. Well, I was going to say love hate sure. relationship uh, because I would have killed. I didn't get to firsthand work for any of them, but being a performer, love it or hate it, I would have killed to work for any of them. <laughs> Uh, You know, even even with the stories I heard, because, you know, we grew up with that's the way the business is. Hey, you know, sure, sure. Um, You know, we're we're sort of in this period in history where we are taking a look at all of that and saying, is that appropriate? Is that Mm -hmm. is that really the way we have to do things? And we're sort of questioning that. And and it is a conversation that's ongoing because some of it. It, uh, it actually does bring out some stuff in people that can be pretty amazing. Um, but mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. They were a little manipulative of their performers. Yeah. Absolutely. But the reason that Michael Bennett is a hero to me and, and will continue to be so is he, above anyone else, figured out how to give audiences what they wanted while giving them something they didn't even know they were getting. Or didn't know they needed. Or exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, his understanding of stagecraft and, as you said, how to bring the audience in, not everybody is good at that. And there, of course, is a story about that the reason that a chorus line is named a chorus line was because he wanted to be listed, you know, before Chicago because there was always this rivalry between him and not only him and himself, but him and Bob Fosse. Yes. But I think that this is another great example of... The show is called A Chorus Line, and everybody loves a kick line. I went and saw a community theater production of Something Rotten, and by darn it, <laughs> when all of those community people started doing a, a kick line, the audience spontaneously broke out into applause, right? Yeah, yeah. It's always it's kind of a given. It's, it's really hard to mess up a kick line because yeah, you know, the audience yeah. loves it. And even a mediocre kick line... And I'm not saying that was a mediocre kick line. I'm sure it was, it was a mediocre kick line. I'll okay, say fine. it. But, <laughs> but there's but just something it still about works. it. It still works because there's something about the fact that all these different people in a show, they come together as one. Yeah. And I got to say, every time you do one, every time you're waiting in the wings to <laughs> you know go out and take your bow, very emotional because you know that audience knows you. 
and they're looking for you and you feel it. You feel that there are people that know my story as this character and they're trying to find me. Yeah, it's... I know. Oh, I mean, I've already go got the chills off. so much. We've just like, I, I know, feel like we've I, just started, but... <laughs> yeah, you, you've just, you know, I haven't, you know, I've thought about these things, yes, over the years, but, you know, being able to look back on it now, uh, you know, yes, it does give me chills. I, you know, when you're young, you wish you'd really thought about it more as you were doing that number. But now as I look back, I realize how amazing it was. Okay, let's talk about Marvin Hamlish. <clears throat> Uh-oh, okay. So, good old Marvin. One of the only people who's an EGOT, that means he's won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. He is one Amazing. of only two people, however, to be a PGOT. It's oh, him did he win a Peabody? He won a Pulitzer. Oh, that's right. Because wow. Chorus Line won everything, including the Pulitzer Prize for drama. And yes. Yeah. So Marvin Hamlish and Richard Rogers are the only two people to be PGOTs. I did not know that. Isn't that That's crazy? pretty amazing. Wow. Now, at this point when A Chorus Line comes about, he has become a well-known accompanist, and then that led to film scoring. And in 1973, he won three Oscars in one ceremony because he had written the, the song The Way We Were. Oh, right. And so that was right before A Chorus Line. So he's kind of, you know, the best thing since white bread or since sliced bread. And then, <laughs> and then, and then he gets uh, hired in to come and do this show with Michael Bennett. His lyricist was Edward Clayban. Yes. He's a fascinating guy. I am, I'm really always very interested in, in Ed Clayban because he was a lyricist, but he was also a composer, kind of in the same way that Stephen Sondheim was first hired to be a lyricist. Correct. And not only was one of his crowning achievements a chorus line, but he also became very instrumental as a teacher at the BMI Eamon Langle workshop, which wow. uh, and I've talked about on the podcast before, is if there is a composer that you love post-1980, I guarantee they came out of this workshop. And yeah, that. um, That's amazing. Yeah, uh, Alan Menken, Howard Ashman, uh, Flaherty and Aarons, you know, wow. Jason Robert Brown, everybody. And there's this really cool show called A Class Act that they put together that is about his life and uses all of the music that he wrote that never made it into a Broadway show. It's really, really fun. And I highly recommend that if people want to know about this character, yeah. that, uh, that they go to that show. It's it's very cool. I'm, I'm going to go to that show because I've heard of it and I've never actually pulled it up. So. Thank there's you. some there's some great stuff. There's a song called Better that is just about as good as any musical theater song you've ever heard in your life. It's 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 really terrific. I'm writing the, I'm writing this down. <laughs> so they worked together on the score and then you had two dancers, Nicholas Dante and James Kirkwood Jr. who worked together on creating the script based off of a lot of these interviews and tape sessions that had gone into the research for the show. Their job was incredibly difficult because the show itself didn't know what it was going to be until it was. <laughs> right. And, and you're kind of, it's like the chicken and the egg. The show didn't know what it was going to be until it was. And you're kind of, I'm curious as to, as you said, that was such a, a daunting job for them. But once they came into the picture... Did the show finally find its shape? That's my assumption. Well, I think that they were going to try and make a traditional book musical at first. Yeah. And so, like, they were going down that road. 
And then they realized, oh, well, maybe we should just like be focusing on the different characters, kind of how it became. But then it was about taking a piece of someone's story here and putting it into this character and and taking someone, some poor actor story that they had so generously offered and giving right. it to somebody else. Like it was just such an emotional minefield, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and for all especially the original like the character of Val, for instance, she's a combination of a couple people. Mm-hmm. It's not just one story. It's not um, just Pamela Blair. Right, right exactly. Or, or Mitzi Hamilton. Um, it's it's a couple of, well, it's both of them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I get that because as a person, you feel very proprietary about your story. But mm-hmm. in terms of creating a piece that's also entertaining, you know, that's where those two people had to come in and say, okay, how do, how do we wrap our, our minds around this and make it a good show? And I'm going to be honest, when I was looking through all of the names of the creative team, when I got to Nicholas Dante and James Kirkwood Jr., I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Somebody wrote the script. Because the the story in my mind has always been that these are real stories, right? But yeah. somebody crafted them. And we'll talk a little bit later uh, with, with some of my other guests about the complexities of that and and consequences of that but but right now i do want to give props to those two guys who were dancers and and saw in themselves a talent to write and took advantage of it and you know sadly they did not go on you know what what might they have done if they hadn't passed away i mean this is both passed away of aids unfortunately along with michael we lost a lot huge generation of people that were lost and what might have been we'll never know and and it kind of speaks to why I don't know who they are because you know their body of work that they did was was not that great because their lives were cut short um, so wow. yeah true 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 yeah the last person I want to talk about is Joseph Papp yeah. who was oh. uh, the producer of the public theater uh, in New York City and his relationship with Michael Bennett really changed musical theater, not just because of the product of A Chorus Line, but the process in which they created it. Instead of just going straight into rehearsals with a finished script and um, then doing an out-of-town tryout like most musicals did, they yeah, started is. workshopping. And yeah. now that's a word that we use very casually nowadays, oh, but casually. that Every wasn't show. done. No, up until then, you're absolutely right. And and, you know, and it's interesting you say the out of town because that was always the tradition. Like every show went out of town to work on mm-hmm. it. It's legendary. You see, it, you know, movies about theater and just silly movies like we're doing our out of town tryouts. We're in Boston and everyone we're hates in us. Boston. <laughs> we're up in New Haven. Everybody was in yeah. New Haven. Yes, um, yes. You know, it's doing a show. <laughs> uh, and when I came into Broadway, late 80s into the 90s, you still had the out of town. It's not so much anymore because it was also a way to kind of hide and work on things out of public view. Mm-hmm. And with the Internet and the age we're in right now, it's almost impossible to do mm-hmm. that. You can't really mm-hmm. work on something privately. Thus, the workshop, I think, is now much more important because you can kind of work out those kinks without being under a microscope of social media and everybody giving their two cents. Um, Amen. And yeah, I uh, when I worked on Swing, I think we did three workshops. It was like, oh, my oh God. wow. I mean, thank you, Mr. Papp, because mm-hmm. you know I, I do think workshops are are fantastic means of finding your show, being able to make mistakes out of public view, mm-hmm. um, and and it's also as a performer, it's a really fun creative process because you're part 
of the creative process and right. uh, your input is there. Now, the show that ended up opening on Broadway and becoming the biggest juggernaut of a hit, the longest running show for quite some time, I mean, is is surprisingly stark. It's just about a bunch of dancers who are at an audition for a Broadway show. The director named Zach is looking for, oh, I forget how many. Oh, what's that line? Is it six boys, three, six girls? Uh, three, three, I think it's six. It's like three men oh, and three I think, women. No, three men, three women. I think you're right. I think it's like three men and three women. Yeah, and, and they're backup dancers for a female star. And the idea that he has is that he wants performers who really share themselves in their performance. So in addition to this opening number, which is just absolutely electrifying, seeing them dig into that grit and really, uh, really serve this choreography over and over again. It's it's the same combination, and yet it never gets old. You see these different individuals maybe struggle with certain parts of it or bring their own strengths to it, and it becomes new every time. It's so fantastic. But after a cut is made, he wants to now not just see them dance, but hear something of who they are. Get to know them. That's when we begin to meet each of these dancers. And we're going to talk about just a few, you and I real quick. Mm -hmm. The first one we're going to talk about is Miss Cassie Ferguson. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Now, Cassie is a really fascinating character. The idea is that she was a chorus dancer, an ensemble member, then had a couple of standout parts looked like she was going to be on the track to becoming a star. And that was, in many ways, Donna McKechnie, who originated the role, her story, right? She had been in Michael Bennett's shows. She had done Company and and Promises, Promises, and had stopped the show with her dancing. She moved to L.A. to start working, and nothing really happened. Yeah, she was uh, squeezing toilet paper. Um, It's a story as old as time. You're always kind of looking to break out of the ensemble. I mean, I have met many performers and dancers who they are just happy as clams to be in the ensemble. And that's their ambition. That's their dream. And that's okay. It's wonderful. The show can't happen without them. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, but, you know, I think everybody has a dream when they come to New York of like, you know, what's the most I can do with my talent? Mm. How far can I get? We'll see. And, you know, it's happening today. It's happening right now. Whenever you see like a hit show and, you know, people are being singled out, you kind of wonder what the, their journey is going to be, how their career is going to go. Are they going to be big stars or, you know, in two years, are they going to be back in the chorus? You just don't know. Show business is a tough mistress, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's the same thing with Cassie's story. And I will say physically, there are parts of that number that I loved doing. And then there are parts that I just hated. I mean, <laughs> we're all, you know, physically different. And and this dance was crafted for Donna McKechnie. And it's built for her body. It is built for her. It's built for her body, her torso, her legs. And admittedly, she and I are not, you know, we're not the same dancer. Um, and I real and also Bennett's choreography. I always say it tends to favor shorter people. It, it's 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 really? very into the ground, mm. low. For okay. those of us who are longer, it's tough. It's hard totally to get see that. down totally there see that. in that you know that opening mm-hmm. number. 
And there it's are a so lot of- tight. You're, yeah. You have to stay very tight and small. I totally see that. Exactly. Exactly. And for us long limbed, limbed people, it, it's a challenge. So, and the Cassie dance is the same thing. You know, Donna had this amazing back. Uh, you know, my strength is more in my legs. Um, and so certain things uh, that Donna did were, were a challenge for me, I, I have to say. She's a beautiful singer, an amazing dancer, but she was also a good actress. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always hated that line, like, I can't act. It's like, oh, but Donna could. <laughs> you know, but, right, right. You know, but that's what they chose for that character. And, yeah. and maybe... Is it an insecurity? Is it someone that's, is it something that somebody said once and so you chose to believe it? You right, know? you chose to believe it or it's like, you know, when ladies say, oh, I'm so fat and they just want you to say, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're, you're a really no, great actor. You're, you're, yeah, and it's like, <laughs> like, I can't act. Oh, no, Cassie, you're an amazing actor. But, you know, that, that, that delves even deeper into the psychology of being a performer. You know, that sure. constant, you know, you always have that insecurity. Like, am I really good? Am I talented? Am I good enough? Am I good am enough? Am I good enough? Yeah. I mean, Talk about like a thesis statement of this show. Am I good enough? And ultimately right. we're saying who you are is who you are. And that is perfect. And that is perfect. And you should not, you know, even the kids at the end of Chorus Line who don't book the show, that's always such a tough thing. And I always love the audience's reaction when they find out who gets the job and who doesn't, you know, because they, they become invested. And I believe when the show first started previewing, or at least started having an audience, Cassie was not one of the chosen. I, I, I had read that. I told me that, yeah. And audiences were so upset uh, that they changed it so that Cassie would get, would get the job because she had done everything that could have been asked of her. You know, uh, yeah. Zach keeps saying, you're too good. You're too good for the course. And she's like, I want to work. That is all, you know, and that is how all. can you not and get I behind that person? Exactly. And if I'm, and if I can do the job, why shouldn't you hire me? Cause that's his own little agenda. Like he sees her as being a star, but she's not working Zach. It's yeah. like, it's great for everybody thinks I'm a star, but I can't pay my rent. I love that's that. Beautiful. But yeah, I didn't, I remember reading that. And I also remember reading that they wanted to maybe change who got the job every night. Right. Like, like it was a choose your own adventure type thing. But then the dressers would get so angry because that costume change at the yes. end between yeah. who gets the part and who doesn't and who has it's to be on crazy. stage first for one exactly. is like you cross your fingers and say a prayer and just hope you make it out on time. So exactly. Exactly. There's no way to there's no way to organize that. Those poor dressers were like, Michael. Don't you dare. <laughs> Don't you dare. You know, and the costume designers and everybody. It's it's just yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare. I mean it would have been kind of fun and exciting. Yeah. But it's also a little um it, it's a little kitschy, probably. And, yeah, that's a know. good that's a good word for it. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think the payoff's worth it, but uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, the three other characters that we're going to talk about are from my favorite number in the entire show, which is At the Ballet. At the Ballet, yes. And I'm not even really a ballet boy, but this song always gets me. <clears throat> yes. You got three characters, Sheila, Maggie, and Bibi, and yes. all three... Ballet is their safe place. Yes. Going to ballet class is their safe place. Yes. Sheila Bryant is a veteran. She's got a lot of attitude. She she's no nonsense. Been Played there, done that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Played originally by Kelly Bishop, then known as Carol Bishop. Kelly mm -hmm. Bishop, if you don't know who she is, the grandma in Gilmore Girls. There you go. She's as, she's as good with rapid 
dialogue as she is rapid choreography. Oh, no, she's she's amazing. And she's an amazing actor. And she was recently in something else. Oh, my God, it's going to drive me crazy because I just watched it. Oh, she was in Halston. Oh, really? Yes, she plays, uh, I think, a publisher in Halston. Oh, how she's cool. a friend of Halston's, but she's a publisher. Yeah. I have a quote here from her because she was one of the people who was at the original tape sessions. She says, when it came to my turn, I said, my name is Kelly Bishop. My real name is Carol Jane Bishop, which I really hate. I was born February 28th, 1944 in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I'm going to be 30 real soon. And I'm real glad. That's exactly what she said. And that's exactly the line. Yeah, it's incredible. So a brilliant performer and a brilliant character that are basically synonymous. She is so good i was uh, i was doing a benefit during the chicago days and 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 bb was there and and kelly was there performing and i didn't you know i knew who she was and and bb came up she's like do you want to meet kelly bishop i was like oh my god yes you know and and bb just is like this with kelly bishop because um, you know bb played sheila she was one of the youngest sheilas which is crazy so yeah she you know i was so i was like yes but i was so intimidated because uh, wow. yeah, she she does not suffer fools, and and she's a very strong woman, um, and she was very nice. But you know, I was just like, oh my god, it's it's Kelly Bishop, blah blah blah. I don't know what to wow. say. I'm, I'm probably That's so stupid, but it was but it was it was great. But yeah, no, the character's amazing. One of the highlights of the show, and of course, Kelly won a, a Tony Award for it. Yes. Uh, another character in the song is Maggie Winslow. Maggie mm-hmm. is super sweet, comes from a broken family and a broken home. And so once again, ballet was her safe place. This story about her pretending to dance with her father in her living room, that's yeah. actually Donna McKechnie's. Yes. And that, that line that line always used to get me. That used to always make mm. me tear up. Then we have B.B. Benzenheimer, who is <laughs> the best name in the show, B.B. It is. <laughs> and B.B.'s story about always wanting to be pretty and having her mother tell her that she, was, she wasn't pretty, she was different. Right. And right. B.B. realizing, well, I, I'm not sure that's better right. or what even as mean? good. <laughs> <laughs> what are you telling me, Mom? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's a Kelly Bishop story. Go figure. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Specifically, that that wording about different is nice, but it sure isn't pretty. Pretty, pretty is what it's pretty about. Is what it's about. Uh, once again, just the the strange culture of playing a character and then listening to another character say lines from your own childhood. You know, like that's that that's would be crazy. really trippy. And yeah, and what is that about? Because Kelly Bishop's a beautiful woman. Gorgeous. So like, what was like, Kelly Bishop's mom thinking? Maybe Kelly Bishop's mom was jealous. I, there, you have, there you go who knows but yeah That's, that that is just uh but kelly you know what kelly could probably handle it she could handle it <laughs> yeah kelly bishop can handle it <laughs> can the adults please smoke thank you <laughs> again hi Stephen hack hi how are you good i'm so grateful you're here thank you so much for doing this sure now, you are a veteran of the Broadway, I am. including the original run of Cats. And before that, you were on tour with the Chorus Line. Both of these shows, two of the longest running in Broadway history. Exactly. And that's why they have a history of hiring many, many, <laughs> many dancers. So, you know, they keep running, you can hire more people. What years of your life were those um, moments? 
I was 18 the oh first time I auditioned. And I was still in St. Louis where I grew up. So it was all pretty much, you are too young to be in this show. But I moved to New York. Um, and I used to see um, T. Michael Reed, who was eventually the longtime dance captain at dance class. And um, oh, wow. many of the kids in class were like in a chorus line. I was like, I want to be sure. in a chorus line. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it was three years later. I had auditioned nine times. and Stop it. I did. I had auditioned because wow. I would go to every open call they had, including that one in St. Louis that I went to. Um, finally, there was another open call and I called up the casting office and I s just left a message saying, this is Stephen Hack and I see that there's another open call for a chorus line and I just wanted to let you know I'm not going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> the grit and tenacity. And three days later, they called and offered me a job. Wow, and you're yeah. kidding. Way to set those boundaries, Stephen Yeah, because I was like, you. Kn I, I think my message said something like, I've auditioned nine times, and I think you know what I can do by now. Right. I mean, I really was, I was way more um, ballsy than I am about anything now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I did the show. Um, I, I mean, I was hired in the, for the show to do understudy. Uh, Mike, Mark, Larry, Greg. And mm -hmm. I did that for uh, a year. Wow. Um, and then I took over the role of Greg. That's incredible. You're from St. Louis. How did you discover dance when you were growing up? When I was growing up, I was Mike. I literally have a tape recording of my sister teaching me tap in our basement on the cement wow. floor. And you hear her saying, shuffle ball change. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying, and and in a little bitty voice, you hear, I can do that. Stop and then, it. Really, it's true. Anyway, so my sister, so I was three and my sister was teaching me what she learned in her dance classes. And I would do, I just wanted to do anything my sister did. So Aww. they, my parents sent me to that same dance class, Merle Chef School of Dance in St. Louis. And hey. I was going to dance class for a year, I think. And then when I was four, my dad decided that little boys don't dance. Ugh, so I didn't go to dance then. class anymore until I was about 12. And I auditioned for a community theater production of Good News. And the oh, director okay. and choreographer of that show, they, I guess, somehow convinced my parents that it was okay to that little boys can go to dance class. Um, so at 12, I went back to dance class and I was just doing jazz and acrobatics. In fact, I, I just talked to some cats friends yesterday and we were talking about doing the double cartwheels in Mungo Jerry and Rumpel Teaser. I said, sure. when they started teaching us that, I was like, oh, I could do that. My sister and I used to do that. Of course, I was 10 <laughs> at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Center of gravity, a little different. For it's sure. harder with adults <laughs> on a raked stage. Um, <laughs> anyway, so then I, I started dancing again when I was about 12. And then through the next several years, I was in um, shows at high school and at the community theater. And one of the big dance teachers in St. Louis, Michael Sims, said that boy should be in, come to ballet class because I had not ever been to ballet class. And I um, learned because I didn't know at the time, somebody said, you have really good feet. Yeah. And I said, I'm not even sure what that means. 
<laughs> but thank you. <laughs> but thank you. Because um, no, it must. I must have still been fifteen. Because when I was fifteen, the National Ballet of Canada came to St. Louis with Rudolf Nureyev, and they needed boys to play the pages. Sure. Um, so I got recruited by my dance teacher to stand on the stage with a spear, and I'm watching. <laughs> This Rudolf Nureyev, I didn't really know who that was. I thought, oh, this guy's good. <laughs> <laughs> He's pretty good, this guy. Um, and then one of one of our friends from dance class was in, invited to be an intern, I guess he was, or in the National Ballet of Canada school. And I thought that was fantastic for him. But I knew at that time it wasn't what I wanted to do. I said, no, I, don't, I want to be an actor. I love that, number one, you had these adults kind of all along the way who are seeing your talent and encouraging it. That's really inspiring to me. Yeah, that was great, I especially my family. And then to see, like, the guts of this little boy to know what he wanted. Yeah. That's incredible. I'm remembering back because I really am kind of shy now. <laughs> but I, I learned early on that when I was on stage and somebody gave me lines to say, then I wasn't shy anymore because I was like, I didn't have to think up what to say. Um, well, okay. So since you played Gregory Gardner, I did. Let's start talking about him. Uh, Cause okay. we're going to go through a, a few characters here. Sassafras, the embodiment. Uh, yeah. How would you describe this guy? What's, well, first of all, when I got hired, I still looked very young and they said, what are we going to do to make you look older? And they had me grow a mustache. Oh, okay. And it kind of came in like blondie. I was oh, a kid still. And and they and I painted it every night with a mascara. I mean uh eyebrow pencil. I wasn't peach fuzz, <laughs> but it needed help. Um so Greg, yeah, he's a, a little snooty. I think that my was inspired largely by John DeLuca, who was playing Greg when I joined the show. Okay. Because I loved the way he did it. And he was very, very full of himself on stage and didn't have any qualms about saying so. That's how sure. he appeared to me. It was someone who was grand. Yeah, grand dame. Gregory and, Gardner is like the gay male incarnate of, I don't know, Judy Dench. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, except she's more humble. Yeah, fair enough. That's true. That's true. And the truth is that I never felt better looking or more confident than wearing that Gregory Gardner costume. Really? With the boots? The boots. And, uh, well, when I joined the show, they still were having the old costumes that they had made in 1975. And Greg wore velour pants, leotard, black leotard underneath with a yellow sweatshirt over it and the boots which i love the boots are so gregory gardner i still have two pairs of boots <laughs> and we think that those boots were inspired by someone who wore them to rehearsal who had been in fiddler on the roof oh like they they kept their shoes from they kept their, their well, run yeah they always give you your shoes because they're custom made for you i sure. still have my gregory gardner boots because they're made to fit my feet Yes. One foot is actually a little bigger than the other foot, so nobody else can You're going to have to take pictures of your Gregory Gardner boots for us. Uh, I will. 
What Let's else? go on to so, Bobby Mills. Okay, Bobby. Who is played by Tommy Walsh. And, you know, I actually really connect to the story that Tommy Walsh shared from the original tape sessions, which is that, you know, they were going around and everybody was sharing their dancer story. And many of them had incredibly tragic and serious and profound things to say. And it got to him and he was like, I I mean, I don't think I really have anything that good to share. So he chose to be, you know, a little lighter with what he said and, you know, was cracking jokes. And I totally relate to that. I remember being in college and it was like a group voice class and the voice teacher asked us to each go around and and introduce ourselves and say something that revealed who we are. And the first girl said her name and then said that her family was very important to her. Now, remind you, I am at Brigham Young University, which is the uh, capital of love and family. And so once she had set that answer, everybody after her did exactly the same thing because they would feel bad if they didn't say that family was the the most important thing to them until it got to me. And I was like, my name is Jeff and I really love Broadway trivia. Like, like I just refused to say family. Yes, family is very important to me, but like I couldn't any, I couldn't anymore. And everybody already said it. Everybody already said it. Exactly. So I kind of connect to Bobby in that, in that way. I feel like he's like, all right, I'm going to let you all know a little bit about me and I'm weird. I think that I would have been like that too. My, because I was always so shy, my nervous reaction in almost any situation to make myself comfortable was to say something funny. Mm. It often still is. Um, <laughs> I think I would relate to that. I actually th- always thought that I should have understudied Bobby, but it was usually the tall guys. After Chorus Line, Tommy Walsh really became a co-director and a co-choreographer with Tommy Toon and right. won quite a few Tony Awards. Definitely made a name for himself as a creator. Uh, let's go on to Don Kerr who I love that everybody has their numbers, their audition numbers. Yeah. And Don's audition number is number five, which makes me think he was a pretty eager beaver in terms of signing up. He got there early. Probably, yeah. I also, whenever I think of Don, I'm just like, oh, bless his heart, because he was a really big part of the show. He had a huge monologue And as the show kept getting created and shaped and changed, his role just got diminished more and more and more. Um, He was originally kind of a a rock and roll type character where he grew up not liking dance and then ultimately kind of found that it made him cool. And so he, he became a dancer driving a Corvette. I think anybody sits in the audience of a chorus line or anyone who's done a chorus line they relate to some part of every part, mm-hmm. some part of every role. So I know for me, the, the thing that I relate to that is that I wanted to be an actor. Sure. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to be a dancer. And somebody said, look, you dance. There's a lot more shows that hire dancers than there are that hire actors. So dance. That's like a and, literal line from the ending section of the show. But yeah, so Don, but he wanted, he wanted to be a director mostly. Yeah, that's true. And, and I, I often think, wonder if that's one of the reasons why he doesn't get the show in the end. Uh, hmm. Because on some level... Oh, yeah, you don't want to hire a director. Yeah. Well, he, he feels like his heart's not really into it. But speaking of that, I think that's a great segue into 
even though the, this show was groundbreaking and has created this amazing legacy, it was not exactly a happy one. They were trying something new, and there was a lot of tension. They started rehearsals without even knowing what the script was going to be like. And one of the the worst things that happened was the original cast and, and members of the first taping session were that, that were so essential to the creation were tricked into signing away the rights to their stories for literally a dollar plus right. a, a single percentage point of, I think, merch royalties to be split among them. So as amazing as the show is, it comes with a lot of bruises. And I don't know if you're willing to talk about this, but I know that, that doing it came with some bumps and bruises as well. You, you've said it, it wasn't necessarily the most positive place to work. Yeah, I'm willing to talk about it. I think that I left the show, which I loved doing. I loved mm-hmm. doing the show from the point of step, kick, kick, leap, kick, touch, which is the first <laughs> thing ever said, mm-hmm. to the very end, even though Greg didn't get the job every night. Um, <laughs> but I, the backstage drama is what was hard because mm. Michael Bennett was tough. And mm. he would come see the show and fire people willy-nilly. Like suddenly we're like, what happened to her? Oh, right. she was sent out to the international company to understudy. Hmm. So I always say that it w- that it's something he learned from Jerome Robbins. Yeah, but they they each had a, a little bit of a unique problem in that they were asking dancers who are normally had been prior in the dancing chorus and they just danced, and mm-hmm. he wanted them to be actors, mm. and many. Well, many of my friends were dancers, never had any acting classes. Mm, So he had to get these people who were trained to be fantastic dancers, which is what they needed and what Jerome Marvins needed for West Side Story, but that they never opened their mouth and said any words before. Wow. You've you've really blown that open for me. I hadn't really thought of maybe the... It it wasn't just these inner demons that these guys had. It was a, a need that they needed to get out of people who didn't have training. Yes, I truly believe that that's why, uh, you know, I never heard him say it or anybody else say it, but I, I think a lot of us felt it because we saw the manipulation and the horrible things that he would say to people. Um, one of my good friends was playing BB and he would, he would say to her, you're not even pretty enough to be BB. <gasps> and uh, she, one, re- one rehearsal, she started crying. It's like, that's what I want. <laughs> wow. But people would lose their jobs all the time, get fired. Because he wanted and needed every night for you to be standing on that line going, God, I hope I get it. And what the way that he instilled that in people was, God, I hope I keep my job. So that anyway, that part of it backstage was tough. And also there were lots of people taking drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that doesn't help. For yeah, sure. no, it was a big drug culture then. But the um, yeah, but the most of it was that the stage management and the creative team who would come in would just almost always be mean. I I think you know I saw he he was nice sometimes when I first met him. I remember he asked everyone he hadn't met to say your name and where you're from and how old mm-hmm. you are, like at the beginning <laughs> of the show. Go figure. And uh, <laughs> I said Hi, I'm Stephen Hack and I'm uh, 21. I'm from St. Louis. And he says. You're saying it like you're you're 15. Say I'm 21. I said I'm 21, and he said, "How'd you get this job?" Oh my I said, gosh! Well, I said I auditioned for it nine times. And what did he, he say said, to that? Well, he said, "Who'd you audition for?" 
but he gave, you know, he really gave me a tough time the first time I opened my mouth. That's fascinating. And I think he did that for everybody. He wanted you to, from the get-go, think in your head, I need this job. I really need this job. The desperation And of that's it. how he got it. Now that we've talked a little bit about Michael Bennett, let's talk about the director in A Chorus Line, who's named Zach. How much do you think is based on Mr. Bennett himself here? I think a lot of it. And tailored on Bob Lapone playing Michael Bennett. Robert Lapone was the original Zach, was nominated for a Tony for it. He, of course, is related to... Patty Lapone. That is quite the family. Yeah. Uh, brother and sister. And it's probably one of the most unsung roles of the show, even though he is kind of the, the lead in many ways. But you rarely see him. You only hear his voice. He is in charge of the flow and urgency of the show because he's feeding everybody their lines on stage. It's a huge amount of dialogue. And in many instances, he's sitting right next to audience members doing it. Yeah, I think that on on tour, there was some theaters that were enormous, you know, those huge 3,000, 2,000 seat places. They had to put him like halfway up in the middle of the audience. That's crazy. So he really was sitting probably, I, there probably were seats around him that they left empty. Now, Zach, as a director, would 100% be canceled if he tried this crap today. Can we exactly. just go ahead and say that? I mean, yeah. the, the idea that a director would make everybody stand in a line and share the most intimate details of themselves to maybe get a job. And a chorus line is an introduction of a new type of acting that... I don't think was really seen in musical theater much. You know, the, this very naturalistic, raw sort of, you know, talking out front. It wasn't just about giving dancers an opportunity to act. It was about giving musical theater a very raw, naturalistic form of acting that I don't think really had been seen very much. Oh, well, in musicals, it hadn't been seen much. Absolutely. Um, but- as far as the the psychology of it all and how you couldn't do that these days, there were lots of stuff in the show that that wouldn't fly. Yeah, <laughs> the, the whole sec. There's a, a the big dance section, the the fourth montage, and there's a part in it called the breakdown. That was because having therapy and stuff like that was becoming more trendy. Oh sure, sure. So you know, before that, people were like telling people they're going to have therapy, right? A chorus line in many ways feels like a product of its time. And when you point out these little details, I I realize how true that actually is. The idea that psychoanalysis and introspection are new and gaining traction. And this entire show is like a therapy session. I wish I had the original program right here. But I think the original, it said, place a theater. Uh-huh. Time now. now. Yep. And they changed that. And now, any I think, I'm pretty sure any production that does it, it says, time, 1975. Mm-hmm. Because some of the stuff, like, mm, I don't know if we would, this is not right. Something's not right about this. Oh, it's 1975. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we get it. <laughs> no, you're, you're yeah. exactly right. Uh, the last person we're going to talk about is Larry, who is Zach's assistant. Now, many people may not know that every well-known choreographer has several assistance. Yeah. A course line was no exception. Michael Bennett had both Bob Avian and Bayork Lee. And those people are 
just essential to the creation of the of not only choreography but show entire shows. Exactly. I'll tell you, one of my friends played Larry for a long time, almost for a year probably. Um, and he hated Larry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Because all the other people got to be on the line. Right. And it was a big you, deal when an understudy got to go on the line or when sure. a, when they replaced someone who was on the line and like, I'm on the line. Aww. Larry Larry was never on the line. <laughs> Poor Larry. Right. And yet has to be one of the best dancers. Exactly. Some of my very best friends are from a chorus line. Really? Because – because when you're 21, 22 years old, you're sort of figuring out who you are and everything. And sure. those kids that we went through that every night, eight shows a week, they became my family. And wow. I I left the show in 1981. And for every Thursday, except maybe a couple since last March, we've had a Zoom get together with seven of my chorus line friends. Oh my God. Every Thursday night for 62 weeks. Wow. Because they are some of my best friends from long, long ago. And we all sort of became who we are at that time in our lives. I mean, that's a legacy in and of itself. That's a lasting memory. Again. I'm with the hilarious quadruple threat that's singer, dancer, actor, comedian. Jay Elaine Marcos. Jay Elaine, thank you Hi, so much for being I'm on. I'm so threatening. I'm so threatening. <laughs> the threat, I'm wondering if we're ever going to get rid of like threatening. Is that like harsh? I like. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think my we dance want, is threatening. When we, <laughs> that's a really good point. We want respect wherever we can get it. So we assigned <laughs> threats to our talents. I know. I've got a knife and a great <laughs> Bat Maul, you try to get me. Seriously. I don't know. I, that's my monologue. No, it's true. That, that's actually, I am armed with turnout. <laughs> yeah. And if I get some rosin, I can hold it. But until then, <laughs> it's gone. Like, if, it's if gone. I were to take a dance class right now, it would really be like, oh, where's the rosin and water <laughs> so that I can hold the turnout? I'm getting a cramp. <laughs> I'm out. Speaking of cramping. I was on my period. No, I. Speaking of cramping, I decided to start doing some YouTube ballet videos. Uh, one of the reasons I don't often go to dance classes because I feel intimidated, often yeah. because of the threats, right? And um, and so I started doing these videos. Good heavens! I woke up the next day and was like, "Good, good huh. gravy." No it's great. wonder our booties look like amazing. Yeah, no I wonder mean, we can wear those costumes in a chorus line. Yeah, it, it's actually, you're saying that, and I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. Ballet, have to get back. Oh, only, really only if you know that you are going to be dancing and performing anytime soon, um, that I really do take dance classes again. Uh, yeah. But I need at least six months ahead of time. I know when, um, I know I'm getting ahead of myself with the, everything, but like when, when Bayark has, called and said like okay well we're doing a course line again in i don't know 2021 22 i'm like well it's 2020 now i'm way behind i need to get back in the class <laughs> i should have started i should have started six months ago yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i get that so talk to me about how you discovered dance yeah the first thing i think of is just you know 
my parents, my wonderful Filipino parents, they put me into dance classes and that it was jazz. Started off with jazz. Mm. You, can't, you couldn't sell me with ballet. I did a recital and I feel like also whenever I would see uh, shows like in theme parks, mm. I would just, I'd always find myself glued to one performer. Like I'd want to pick uh-huh. one out and I'm like, oh, I like her. I'm originally from Canada and there's a theme park called Canada's Wonderland and Stop although it. it was all about the rides, it was when my parents, we would see these shows, I would like that and I think my parents put me into dance classes. I like the jazz thing. And I'm so grateful that at one point, a teacher at that, that, that studio that I was at, he was like, you're a good dancer, you're a great performer, you should take ballet. Mm. And so then I did take ballet and it was uh, Russian ballet and Royal Ballet of blah, blah, blah. And, sure. Um, yeah, and so that's kind of where it started in a sense of you know just went in and then you just like the people around you and then you do a recital and you feel like you're janet jackson and then you're like oh my gosh i want to keep on doing that and speaking of janet jackson throughout high school that's when yes i was still dancing but i really wanted to be one of janet jackson's dancers that was it come on like rhythm nation all the way yes and that's when you learned it like just how people are learning the tiktok dances yeah you know we you would tape the Janet Jackson video for when it went on. You'd have to wait. And I would watch it over and over through a mirror. And that's totally. how I would learn the Janet Jackson stuff. And so... So did you do... Yes, of course. You can hear it, right? And I don't know any of the lyrics. Who does? And that's why when you sing at karaoke, you're like... For you. That's, that's my belt. <laughs> that's how um, great I am. It's but, the threat. Um, I trained as a, as if I was going to be a ballerina, but I knew inside that this is just part of it, but I wasn't going to be a ballerina, even though I did do what everyone else did. They auditioned for the National Ballet in Canada. I got back a absolutely not response, but I sent in my stuff, you know, uh, um, but I wasn't heartbroken when I didn't get in. I just kind of knew, huh, I just went through the motions. So I feel like I'm glad that I had that training to be able to still have a career right now and be able to p- dance and possibly take a YouTube video and still know that my training is there, even though the angle is a nice 45 degrees. It, it's like I still have it because of years and years and years in the studio. So I think that's a beautiful mantra, this idea of train as though you're going to be a ballerina with the knowledge that your life will probably be happier if you're not. Yeah, but at the same you time, I, my life wasn't fully consistent of that. I was also taking jazz classes and then mm-hmm. um, I only had like, I was a part of a school that had competitions. And so, yes, I was a competition kid, but I never had any solos. Except one year, my wonderful dance teacher said, I want to put you in the musical theater category where you lip sync. That's all you do is lip sync. And I was like, when you think of it now, you're like, this is the drag queen category. That's what it really should have been called. They called it the musical theater category. And all you do is lip sync to a song and people would lip sync and they would, you know, do whatever. But they would, it would show just personality. be show personality, but they would 
it would just be a jazz dance, but to Funny Girl or something. Right. But what right. I ended up doing is I ended up doing sketch. I would do kind of a sketch because I'm not actually singing. Like it'd be like going against So You Think You Can Dance. And then next we have Waka Waka, Jay Lane Marcos doing, you know, doing, <laughs> doing drag. Telling, doing drag. And I beat out the person who was a dancer. But I can, I think of it now because I'm on the other side of the table and being in the business for so long when I have adjudicated dance competitions. When I'm sitting there, I'm like, the bare minimum is dance. But what do you, what is a special mm. sauce on top? All I had was sauce. I was just saucing it up on that I was stage. all sauce. I was all sauce. There was no hamburger. But yeah, so that is kind of the trajectory of like what dance has done is giving me the discipline. And yeah. then everything else gave you the voice. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Now, in, in terms of a chorus line, uh, it's kind of a big part of your life. Yeah. Right? And you know what? When I come back and think about it, after I did the drag queen, <laughs> drag queen mm-hmm. category, um, my second, the only other one was my teacher said, you're not going to lip sync this one. We're going to have you sing. And I was like, I forgot to mention that. And this, you know what the song was? Nothing. Stop it. I know. I'm getting, like, I was like, oh my goodness. My gosh. Yeah. Let's talk about synchronicity. Right? Yes. Yeah, full circle. Mm-hmm. Now, I need to use both of my hands to count how many Broadway credits you have, uh, which is amazing. And one of them was the revival of A Chorus Line. Yes. Plus, you were in Every Little Step, which is the documentary about casting that revival. Yes. That, Every Little Step. Is, is is everything. It's uh, it's a it's an incredible documentary, and the fact that there wasn't like some Oscar love for that thing drives me bonkers. But I do. I know what you're saying. Um, but I do know, like, uh, when I do teach and I, I speak at different schools or something like that, I hear teachers like, "Yeah, we played that." You know, they show that to their students, and I'm like, "Good," uh-huh. because in that you will see. Uh, what first of all, <laughs> I can barely even watch it sometimes because you know that you look at the cattle call, mm, like all of us just coming in, and you see the amount of people. When I look at that documentary and I see what I put myself through every day, like that's mm. what I go through every day. I no, I uh, we normalize it, right? We're like yeah. this is totally normal. <laughs> everything you're saying so that's why you go through a pandemic and you're like yeah it's we're on that high level of trauma but yeah so every little step watch it you will see uh one of my worst auditions actually the worst audition i've ever done and it's at the very end and then the other part of it there's another audition moment in there where i i do what i usually do in the room but my worst audition is documented in there so horrible i totally forget everything my worst fear it's right in there. But then I had gone on to years later working with them again. So in a sense, never really matters. Or it does. But it does and it doesn't. It does and it doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. The first time I worked with Bayork, I was completely intimidated. And she was so wonderful to say, this is your story now. This is your story. She's able to wow. give you that permission because she knows how nerve-wracking it is for someone to be standing in front of her and tell her story. Now, of course, we're talking about Connie Wong. Yes, yes, uh, Connie Wong. 
the amazing uh, Connie Wong on the line. Um, she is based on Byrick Lee, who, of course, you've, I'm talking to the listeners now, you have heard her mentioned already, and I promise you will continue to hear about Miss Byork, yes. the legend. The story of Connie is hers. She, uh, Byork made her Broadway debut at age five as one of the little kids in The King and I. She was five when she made her Broadway debut. Yeah. She, Where are you all now? You a little lazy? You feel a little lazy? Right. That's going to help you out. <laughs> Yeah, she was on unemployment at age eight because she outgrew the role. Like that, yeah. that is the kind of veteran Bayorg Lee is. She she grew up and was then in Rodgers and Hammerstein's Flower Drum Song. But when she grew up, she only grew to four foot ten. Four, four, four. At the beginning of, well, when we were doing the revival, now we're saying that's after I had done it. I toured around with it in 96, 97. Right. Ten years later went back on Broadway to do it and close out the revival. But while we were doing that, there'd be days like we'd be doing the show, the show's running already. Okay, this is our your half hour call. So-and-so is in the show. Jaylene Marcos, can you go down to meet Jim in the <laughs> conductor's office? In the pit? In the pit. And it was always because, hey, yeah, we're just going to, um, let's just find that first note. Let's just find, you know. <laughs> I would just lose it. I would just lose it sometimes because I mean, just uh, like it's not like I came in like like it was it was there, Um, but yeah, it's not easy. Okay, let's let's talk about Diana Morales. Oh yes, I love that. uh, Like I said earlier in the episode, that all of these characters have first and last names. Yes. They are full people, and they also have a number, except Cassie. Cassie doesn't have a number. But it gives a lot of context to the character. For example, Diana is number two, yes. which, when you think about it, that means she was probably the second person to sign up at the audition. So she is like go-getter, signing up right at 7 a.m. You know what I mean? I love this. I never thought of it. She ain't scared of anything. Yeah. And she's really hungry for it. She wants this job. Dion is also another character that's based on the actor that originated the role, Priscilla yes. Lopez Kwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was born in the Bronx, got accepted to the High School of the Performing Arts, and had a big old clash with the head of the drama department, and that became the inspo for the song Nothing. You know, I, I would venture to say Paul, the character Paul, is probably the heart of the show, but Diana is the musical soul of the show. Yeah. You know, both of those songs, Nothing and What I Did for Love, are so synonymous with what Marvin Hamlish and, and Edward Clayban created. It's They're intelligent, but incredibly melodic and modern for the time <gasps> yeah. in which they came out, you know? And you can hear the underscoring. Every time we have a sits probe, that's when I you can really hear all the instruments, really. Because when you're on the stage and they're in the pit, you can't hear all of it because we don't get all of that in our monitors. So when sure, you're in sure. a sits probe, like when we did it here at the Hollywood Bowl, um, that was another moment where we went to the Walt Disney concert, the hall? Ho- concert hall. Yeah, gorgeous. Oh my goodness. And so then even more, the sound was just the music, I was like, why am I acting like I've never heard this before? <laughs> and and it's like the music is just speaking to you. And I, I 
oh, there's nothing like that. Like hearing how that music has that flair and you're like, this is Diana. This is where she lives. She's feisty. She's going to tell it like it is. She says mm-hmm. everything that we want to say, but we, we don't say it. Yes. But it's in yes, that yes, music. Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's go to Judy Turner. Hot mess Judy Turner. I'm kind of obsessed with her. Her character was created as kind of a dumping ground for all of these really funny anecdotes that needed to be put into one individual. And like, and that gave birth so to Judy funny. Turner. Nobody goes around singing her song. I don't even, you know what I mean? It's just <laughs> like, it's, I felt so bad. Although my friend Heather, who played her, is perfect because if you've ever seen a cartoon where that's... Judy Turner. She yeah, yeah, yeah. Melodically, I, like it's so difficult. If I thought trying to find certain notes were difficult, you have to get someone who really can sing all the way up there, and you can hear how fun and quirky and all over the place. Yeah, she is. And then at the same time, you need to be a fabulous ballerina. Exactly. Oh, such an interesting character. Yeah, I keep on thinking of like during rehearsals. By York, and I will say this for anyone, if you're ever auditioning for, if you see a course line is being, uh, an audition is being held, um, it is your free masterclass to be in a room with By York Lee. Because she will just drop these nuggets of like, I think that's why there's so many books like about a chorus line and people's oh perspective. My gosh. And you're like, yes. whoa, you see, you hear it from the perspective of whoever's writing it. But then when I add up all the perspectives of like, people said this about Judy and this and this and this, and you, you have a full, it's like dinosaurs. Why do I make it sound like these people are so old? <laughs> it's like dinosaurs. The fossils. Okay, my analogies are all like we talk about. No, the no, sauce. no. I get what you're saying though. There's <laughs> like there's history there. Yeah, and, and you see the relationships of how when certain people talk about certain people, and you get a sense of who these characters are. Whenever you look closely at art, and because of the podcast, I've had the opportunity to really dig into a lot of the storytelling of our musical theater history. You realize that there are reasons for pretty much every single decision that's made in yeah. in these artistic pieces, and, and particularly artistic masterpieces. The, the thing that's special about a chorus line is that those reasons are usually actual living human beings. Yeah, we forget you know, it's that not, they're... It's not just something, it's someone. Yes. All right, let's go to Christine Uric DeLuca. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christine is the other half of the married couple in the chorus line, and we'll talk more about that when we talk about Al. But Christine is probably best known as the girl who can never really sing. <laughs> yes. The really couldn't sing story is pretty much word for word Renee Bauman. Uh, I think that's how you say her last name. Who was the original Christine, but not the original married couple, if that makes sense. Those are two separate people. Yes. I love Christine and I guess by the transitive property, love Renee Bauman because this idea that a, a traveling salesman came to her home <laughs> and... And said, this girl's got it because she could, like, touch her toe to the back of her head. Like, all of that is totally real. And then 
God bless the the person who loves musical theater, but couldn't really hold a, a note in a bucket. <laughs> right. Like that's yeah. like that's, that's amazing. That's L.A. That's L.A. That is... <laughs> you know, it the hasn't changed. The, it hasn't changed. No, but I'm saying, you know, there's there is the working, but then there's also the perception of, hey, if I look this and I look like this, oh, I'm gonna make it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Fair other enough. things in in the middle, like training and stuff. But sure, yeah, contortionist, you're gonna make it in Cirque du Soleil. Perfect, fine. Yeah, I like that yeah, yeah, specific. Yeah. You know, but that is that is very specific. <laughs> but yes. no, fair point. Fair point. Now it's time to talk about Valerie Clark because while Deanna Morales was auditioner number two. Valerie Clark is number 179. Hers is the highest number of all of the auditioners. I, yeah, um, I just, I love the idea that Valerie was like, Ugh, I mean, I guess I'd rather just get a speaking role in a film in Los Angeles, but I'll show up to this dance call. I love how and we do that. We, we like, that's my favorite part is what was their moment, literally their moments before when they got the call. Like, I always right. think about that for, but I mean, she was ready to go and she was looking she fab. She didn't bring her heels until later on for some reason. Yes. She was just in sneaks. She's like, yeah. I, so she, she might have been busy. My boobs will t- do the talking. <laughs> yeah. She was originally played by Pamela Blair, who was a, just a je ne sais quoi of a woman. Yeah. yeah? And I have this quote from her. She says, whenever I don't seem to be getting anywhere in this business, I try to remember I was almost a hooker and that I've come a long way. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? You know, she had a very conservative upbringing, but then became like a very sexual liberated performer, would would dance topless at bars, kind of got involved with a pimp who tried to get her killed. Like it was like this whole this whole situation. And she ends up playing, you know, this character named Valerie Clark, who has a very similar story, shows up to shows up in New York from small town wanting to be a rocket. She has one of the best songs in the entire show called Dance 10 Looks 3, in which she complains about how she never got jobs looking the way she did. And so she went to the doctor and got some little help and uh, pumped up those tits and pumped up that ass. And that's the song. Yeah. Now you Mm. played Val too, right? Yeah. I was so intimidated uh, by even the thought of going in for it. I remember when I heard that they were going to be doing it again. And I was like, okay, Connie Wong, here I come again. Let me see if I can get it again. And I will say also, even though I work for Biork in all these productions, you will always have to audition for her. And um, playing Val... When they said to come in, I was like, I mean, that's funny and all, but that ain't never going to happen. That is not going to happen. All I could picture also the last time I did it was Jessica Lee Golden. She's great. And I was like, uh, sure. I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> but then I realized what is my connection to it and how can I make the underlying themes, which is not feeling like you're fitting in. You, you come to a place and you're being judged physically. Um, And then it got me like, when I say the line, it's because of the way I looked. And that always got me. And I was like, oh, this is not a drama, (laughs) Jaylene. Pull yourself (laughs) together. Stop crying here. But the the deep root of it is so many times we just don't feel like, ah, I fit in. This is how I look. And you think 
I don't have it in me. Let me tell you. And then the comedy comes on top of that. But finding the root of what it was. And no one has ever really told me because, yes, I'm Asian, but I, I felt it. I have felt it. They're like, you're just so great. We just don't know what to do with you. And I was like, whoa, that is equivalent to saying it was because of the way I looked or whatever. And, you know, I make up my own story. And yes, but bottom line was we have to be this thing that society says we are. So I am doing it. I am playing your game. Here you go. Wow. That's huge. I love when things surprise me while recording the show. And I never thought that one of the most profound characters that we would be discussing is Val. That's really, really special. Thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. Again. Hey there. <laughs> it's Eddie Gutierrez. Hi. <laughs> I'm so grateful you're here. Eddie, you really represent to me the new musical theater generation that like, truly understands the legacy of A Chorus Line mm. and is carrying it into the future. Oh, well, thank you for having me, first of all, because uh, this is truly... Um, I am such a fangirl for A Chorus Line while also simultaneously being very involved with the show in its uh, in the current generation. And so thank you again for having me. I remember the first time I re- realized this show was kind of a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. It was on social media. I can't remember who posted it. It may have been Steven Rada, but it was a video of you in a hotel room. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I know what you're about to say. (laughs) Performing the entire dance break of Music in the Mirror (laughs) in in the space between, like, the bed and the television. Yes. Like, it... It's like two by four feet, and you were killing it like it was the Schubert Theater. Oh, my God. I literally have not thought about that until you just brought it up. <laughs> not since it happened. That is nuts. I totally forgot about that. Yes, yes. I love the Cassie dance. <laughs> How do like, you know all of it, though? Yeah, like, an, like any sensible Paul, you learn the dance while you're backstage <laughs> waiting for your monologue, and then by the time you finish your run, you know the dance. <laughs> I imagine Paul comes out on stage after after Music in the Mirror, and he's like breathing really hard, and Zach's like, what? <laughs> Why are you out of breath, Paul? And you're like, oh, nothing. <laughs> nothing. I was just practicing the dance. <laughs> Before we get into your relationship to A Chorus Line, Mm -hmm. can you share with us your dancer story? How did you discover dance? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think one of the reasons I really connect to Paul is a lot of our story is very similar. Uh, I wasn't really involved in the arts growing up. I uh, discovered theater and dance and music all very late in life, around the age of 16, which is when Paul started dancing as well. A friend randomly dragged me to an audition in high school, and I I got a part. It was like in Romeo and Juliet. And then from there, just like everything started happening. I started taking voice lessons. I started taking dance classes. So it all happened very late. And then I basically had a year from when I started till I did my first production of A Chorus Line. I did it, it was in high school. And oh my gosh, you guys did A Chorus Line in high school? Yeah, at a, a private Episcopalian school with, <gasps> n- with none of the book edited except for F-words. So it was v- mucho escándalo. Um, sure. And the, our headmaster was very upset. <laughs> but uh, but <laughs> doing that imagine. show like really ignited in me like 
the the fact that I really wanted to do this for the rest of my life. So that happened a year after I had started everything. And then I I, ha- I had one more year before I was like, okay, what am I doing for college? I just discovered this thing that I really, really love, but I haven't mm-hmm. really spent a lot of time at doing it. Is this a path I want to go down? And uh, I just, on a whim, decided yes. And I applied to NYU and got in, and then the rest is history. <laughs> and boom. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. It, That's so, so yeah, awesome. it all happened very late for me, but it ended up being my life. See, now, we have very different stories because... Growing up in Utah, there was no way in H-E double hockey sticks that (laughs) I was going to do a chorus line in high school. In fact, I don't think I saw a chorus line until I moved to California. Ah, yeah. And what did you think about it when you first saw it after after not having been exposed to it? Yeah. I loved it so much. Absolutely. I mean, I knew it. I had the cast album memorized. I had seen the film, Uh which we won't be talking about. Please, let's not. (laughs) (laughs) Um... But still, I, ha- I hadn't seen a live production of it. And it reeks with tradition to mm. me. Mm-hmm. I-, I always say that my favorite moment in the show is when everybody hits their iconic pose right. that like melts into the iconic pose. Mm-hmm. You just feel like the ghosts of every dancer who's ever been on stage, yeah. every person who's ever played those roles and stood in those stances. And it's really overwhelming to me. Oh, absolutely. And I think what's so so ironic about that, but also beautiful is, is the show was anything but tradition when it came out, you know? Exa- right? No, exactly. But because of how iconic it is, it has become tradition, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That, that's a very good point. Yeah. Now... You have become part of that tradition. Right. Can you talk to me about how that came to be? Yeah. So any major life of uh, pivot that I've made in my life, Chorus Line is lurking somewhere around the corner. Uh, (laughs) It it, it was my, as like I said, it was my big first musical that I ever did in high school that kind of set me on this path. It was my first big professional show out of college. It's what got, got me to the Hollywood Bowl. It's what got me to City Center. It, it was a lot of landmark moments for me the show was a part of. Through that, because all those were, were productions, for the most part, with the estate and working with Bob Avian, uh, Peter Pileski, his, his partner in life and in art, um, and Bayork Lee, who is now one of my, my biggest mentors. But uh, after Hollywood Bowl, I mean, I'd always been very obsessed with the show and, and knew that it was very special to me. However, I always knew that I was very interested in every facet of the show. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wanted to be directing at some point in my career and, and choreographing and setting choreography. And I knew I wanted a course line to be a big part of that. And so after I moved back from L.A. after the Hollywood Bowl, I contacted Bayork when I heard that another national tour was going out. And I was wondering if I could assist in any way, get her coffee. I don't know, like literally just stand <laughs> in a corner. But she told me, she was like, how about I teach you the show and get you ready to pass this piece on? to the next generations. And I went, okay, that's more than I expected. And that's exactly what I want. Um, like, and I passed out. And, and then I, I passed out. To... I died. I was reincarnated. <laughs> and then I was in the rehearsal room. Uh, <laughs> it was, and it was an amazing experience. So I cut my teeth on directing and choreographing the show on the last national tour that went out in 2018, I believe. Yeah. So, so through that, I, uh, Bayer trained me in, in Michael Bennett's original choreography and the direction of the show. And since then, I've I've set three or four productions here in uh, New York, as well as in Texas. And it's it's allowed me to pursue a passion that I've always had in regards to directing and in regards to a chorus line. 
Wow. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Truly. Now, Bayork, of course, was the original Connie Mm -hmm. and was very, very close to Michael Bennett. How would you describe her in in terms of being a mentor and mm-hmm. um, yeah she she's she's one of the most special people i've I've ever worked with in my life uh, as she was training me, I was in the audition process as well so she was she was not only training me in, in teaching the show but in how to run an audition for this show and she mm. told me that Michael asked her to do a few things with every audition that she does with the show. one is to make sure that every dancer is seen to make sure that no one feels like they were invisible during this audition. So the second you start walking in the room, Bayark waits by the door. She shakes every person's hand and wa- welcomes them into the space. Wow. She also makes sure that everyone walks away from the audition truly learning and having it ingrained in their body, the choreography from, from this show. She wants them to walk away having taken a piece of the show with them. And the third thing that she always wants to do is make sure that everyone has a workout. She always says at the end of, of, <laughs> of an audition, you can skip the gym today because you got your workout in. She wants to make sure that every dancer, no matter if they get a callback or if they get cut, that they got something from that day, that it was not a waste of their time. She respects dancers so much. And that spirit just permeates the audition room, the rehearsal room, the theater when you're in tech and you're performing, you can feel her energy in the space. She is a very magical woman and she cares so much about the show. And because all these characters or performers that these characters are based on were her friends, Hmm. she feels it her duty to make sure that she passes on their legacy. So it's not just a, a job for her. This is the show is very personal for her. And it's very important to her that she she passes this on the right way. So I love her to death. She is magical. She works you to the bone. And I wouldn't have her any other way. By York for president. On it. I mean, please, 2024 or 2028 or whenever. Just get her in there. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Let's actually talk about some of her friends. And by yes. that, I mean some of the characters in this show. Absolutely. We're going to start with uh, Mike Costa. Mike Costa. Costa Short Filoni. for Costa Filoni. <laughs> Which you played, it, correct? I did, yeah. And I get, I'm, oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. I'm going to play him again. Yes. Oh, return yeah. to the old shoes. And I know what to warm up now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he, how would you describe Mike? He's like, he's a confident guy. He's a confident guy. He's very Italian. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the Italian presence in the show is 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 very uh, strong, and, it, and it's a great uh, culture to kind of see come to the show. Um, mm-hmm. And Mike Costa definitely brings that. Uh, originally based on uh, Sammy Williams, as well as a little bit on Wayne Salento. Uh, who was the original? Who was the original Mike Costa? And who became the choreographer of Wicked? Of for Wicked, those I know what a career he has had. Right. In, in the newer script, I think they, they've made his birthday 4th of July. I, I'm not sure if that's exactly what it was in the original script, mm. but uh, it really helped emphasize that this, this man, I mean, he's Italian, comes from a big family. He mm-hmm. has energy. And you know where they put him in the show? They, they, it's the number that kind of kicks off the musical numbers of, of the interview portion of, yeah. of the show. You know, he's so, one of uh, the few men who has like a solo number in the entire right, show. Exactly. And it's the one that tells the audience... This is what you're getting into. Right, right. And and he's the he, it kind of his is the most straightforward of like an audition. You know, he kind of approaches his as how do I impress this choreographer? Um, Absolutely. Which which as the show goes on, that that kind of formula changes and people are like they become more vulnerable and they're sharing things about their lives that aren't as so, as a uh, 
classic musical theater friendly, you know? You're right. He is kind of playing the game, mm-hmm. given the audition that he wants to give. And it isn't until Zach sees a little bit of vulnerability peeking through that he's like, all right, now you can step back into lane. Mm-hmm. Let's go on to Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony. He's Tempe the youngest Arizona. guy at the audition. Youngest guy, 20 years old. I love in the original tape sessions, the, the, so a man came, Steve Anthony, um, who was kind of the inspiration for this character's genesis, though a lot of the story of Mark is based on Michael Bennett's life. But the reactions from the dancers, the second he said he's 20 years old, the people Ugh. in that tape session <laughs> lost their... They were so <laughs> upset. Get out of here. Get out of here, you youngin'. I mean, he makes it... Because, you know, one of the misconceptions about the show is that it's about a bunch of people who really want their big break on Broadway. No, this is about a lot of seasoned uh, yeah. Broadway dancers. You know, they've been in shows before and, and they're trying to keep their career alive. Yes, but but they have experience under their belts. But this boy, Mark Anthony, does not. He made it to this final audition and he's 20 years old. It's probably his first big Broadway audition and he's already there at a final callback. So, you know, I I mean, I think we can all relate to when we, when we experience mm-hmm. that person in an audition room and we're like, oh my God. But also the, the talent. Uh-huh, exactly. You know, he's a gift. He's gifted this kid. He's an incredible dancer. Yeah. Mark makes the show. He represents a lot of a lot of hope for for those who are just starting out. One of his big contributions to the show is in Hello 12, Hello 13 Mm -hmm. montage in which he talks about his introduction to sexuality or his own sexuality, which was through uh, encyclopedias, basically. Science books. Exactly. I think that's it's such a great moment of levity for for the show, but it's also it really introduces us to what the montage is, uh, mm-hmm. which it, yes, it's about reminiscing about the past, but it's also uh, I mean that's a, such a volatile time in people's lives, adolescence. It's kind of why I connected to the show originally before I had really any theater or dance experience. I wasn't relating to the show because because it was about a bunch of dancers. I was relating to it because I was a teenager. I was 17, 16 at the time, and I was going through the crazy time of life that is adolescence. <laughs> and uh, and I was relating to what these people were saying uh, because so much of the show is about that time in your life. It's such a, a pivotal part of everyone's life. And Mark really kicks us off with a lot of the awkwardness that can happen in that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. When I was playing Mike, I hated Mark because I felt like he was my competition, right? Uh But this moment when he starts talking about sex and the awkwardness of it it, during Teenager, Mm -hmm. as each of these characters reveal who they are, you can't help but identify with them. And I felt like that was the moment for me when I'm like, oh, I get this guy. Yeah. Like, he's like me. We're like each other, you know? Oh, absolutely. I honestly feel that way about Mark a little bit in general. I was very innocent growing up. The first time I had a wet dream, mm. Eddie, I <laughs> sobbed. Oh, I felt oh, no. horrible. I thought like I had done something so terribly wrong and oh. had no idea. But um, <laughs> well, that's a, that's but, really so, that's a really so great story, story to share because it, it's like. You know, I think we can view that moment for Mark as so funny and and uh-huh. and hilarious, but there really is uh, that that big question of when it happens of what is happening in my life right now. What is happening to my body? Well, am I a bad person for this? You, you know, yes. there is there is depth to that moment. Absolutely. Yeah, and I know Cameron Mason hated that moment with the original Mark. He was like, "This is what I get to share with the world <laughs> as I play this part." Like, 
Oh God, this is so embarrassing. I'm known for gonorrhea on yeah, Broadway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is my my contribution to the legacy of musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Let's go on to Richie Walters. Richie Walters. Oh, one of my faves. He's black. Yes, he is black. He's uh, from Herculaneum, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this character so much, and it might be because I play Paul a lot, and the show is structured that Connie, Richie, Paul, and Deanna kind of are always near each other uh, mm. in, in the progression of the show. So whenever I do the show, I get close to the, the that group. You know, And, you know, Bayek would tell me, the reason for a lot of that is that before choreographers like Bob Fosse or Michael Bennett were really using BIPOC performers in, in their mm-hmm. casts, what was happening was people would wait outside because, you know, all the auditions were in a theater. They would wait outside the theater and the assistants and things would come out, look at the crowds and call the people in that they wanted to see. And frequently, you know, you'd have the, the BIPOC performers being waiting outside and they wouldn't get called. And so they would just end up spending the morning waiting for nothing. And then they would all just decide, OK, let's go get milkshakes at Howard Johnson's, you know. And oh, so uh, and so that was their day. And so they got to bond through that. So these performers really know each other. The minority dancers really are connected. Exactly. There's a relationship between these performers. They understand what it's like to be marginalized, especially Connie and Richie. Uh, Paul and, and Deanna are frequently, uh, I mean, the genesis of those characters came from uh, lighter skin Latinos. And mm-hmm. so they kind of go under the radar sometimes, depending on the situation. Um, but Richie and Connie especially, are they, they know each other through shared experience. Um, I have a quote here from Ron Dennis, who played Richie Walters. He says, I thought it was important that I be in a show, a new face, a small face, a black and a male in a show that's basically about white gypsy dancers at work all the time. You couldn't name one black dancer who had done a lot of shows. And for the record, gypsy is now a term that we don't use. But what he's referring to are dancers who go from show to show to show. Mm -hmm. And and he's saying there were no black dancers that would go from show to show to show. No, and, that, not at that time, for sure. I mean, like I said, I, I, there were people who were starting to do it. Bob Fosse had his his crew. You know, at that time, dancers had the choreographers that they worked with consistently. And, and the choreographers would take them from show to show. Uh, funny enough, in the Genesis of a Chorus line, uh, Richie was not a character. It was Angel. It was a, uh, it was a female role that mm. Candy Brown ha- was uh, creating. Um, Love Candy Brown. Candy Brown. God, oh, what an amazing performer. But a Bob Fosse performer. You know, she was working right. with Bennett on, on, on the workshops. And when Chorus Line was up in the air, whether it was really going to be a thing uh, at the public, Fosse ended up taking her back uh, for Pippin because uh, Pippin was coming and that and that was a definite. And she mm-hmm. was one of his dancers. And so uh, she went to Pippin. So when they were looking to recast Angel, they were looking for another black female performer and nobody was really fitting the bill. And Bayork said to Michael, you know, Ron Dennis has been in for you a lot. You never cast him. He doesn't have a lot of credits. I mean, he was in, in the Pearl Bailey production of uh, Hello, Dolly. Hello Dolly, which is an all black mm-hmm. production. But let's just let's just get him in. You've always wanted to work with him. This is the moment. Um, and they they cast him. And, and the role wow. is iconic uh, thanks to his creation of it. So Richie really is a landmark moment for the show. And and while the show originally was very, uh, I mean, you have Connie and Richie, you know, I think nowadays we realize 
that a lot of these roles could be those those performers. You know, it's a period piece that takes place in the 70s, but things were changing, especially with those types of choreographers like Bennett and Fosse. And you can really cast a show in a way that speaks to that time period, but doesn't only cast one one Asian performer and one and, and one black performer, you know? Wow, that's cool. Thank yeah. you for bringing that up. Yeah. Let's go on to Al DeLuca, shall we? Al DeLuca. Another Italian-American. We may Another not. Italian we may American. only have one black character, but we got plenty of Italians. We got plenty of Italians. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I love Al. And, and I, you know, we want more from Al, honestly. You know, we don't really we get do. to hear his stuff. We, he's there with Christine, but, but who is Al? <laughs> <laughs> um, it seems like Al gets a lot out of taking care of his wife. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, maybe, he's there for her. Maybe speaking for her too yeah. much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, um, uh, based on, on Steve Bookfor and Denise Bookfor, who are they a were a real married, married couple, couple. Mm-hmm. Um, still together to this day. No Mad- way, really? Yeah, madly in love with each other still. Uh, That's awesome. Just the perfect uh, couple. But Steve what, was this guy. You know, he was like the only kid from the Bronx who was taking dance classes. So, so that energy comes throughout. What I love about Al is like, a little known fact about Al, because um, uh, you really only get stuff through the montage about him, and that you have to be listening closely to hear his little pieces of story. Um, What's your favorite one? He talks about head-on collision. Eddie was killed, which Dang. it's so intense. It's like a really serious drop uh, lyrically, even though the music doesn't doesn't let you go there. But but lyrically, it's like, oh, this guy's been through some stuff. Like so uh, fleeting and so yeah. like monumental all at the same time. No, but Al um, really is like he's he's kind of there because Christine really might be something special. So he he's kind of taken along for the ride by the choreographer, just so so he can get a chance to maybe cast Christine, um, mm. which uh, is not exactly how things turn out. <laughs> yeah, another spoiler. Mm-hmm. Do uh, n- neither of them do right? Yeah, neither of them do. <sighs> That's a heartbreaker. That yeah. I, that one that one's a heartbreaker for me. Yeah. All right. Before we talk about Paul, because I'm saving him for last. Yes. At the very beginning, there are cut dancers, and they're yes. actually scripted. They have names. Yes. They, they have do. little bits. Like they are very intentionally in the show, and which I've always loved. Usually, the cut dancers are covers or understudies for other people in the show. Exactly. And it allows them to still get out there and do the freaking combination every every show. Right. But I just wanted to know if you have any favorite cut dancers. Uh, well, at the Hollywood Bowl, I played Roy, and I do believe he is Roy's the my best favorite. cut dancer. <laughs> Wrong arms, Roy. Roy Wrong Rogers. Wrong arms, Roy. Yeah. Um, he's, yeah he's, Roy. He, he gets cut because his arms are always wrong. Always wrong. Can't get them right. I don't know how he got to this final audition. Probably from, through the singer's call. Um, <laughs> Wait till you hear me sing, says Roy. Exactly, exactly. We never got to, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I just think the bit is so is so clever. You know, I think there's also a way to do it that really feels like, oh, I've seen this guy at auditions before. Yes. I, I've seen the guy who just, can't, I don't know how he got here, but he's here and he just can't get it right. Um, we, I feel like if you've been in this long enough, you are Roy at some point. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. I was just about to say, I was like, I've definitely been Roy at, at, at auditions before. Um, yeah, no, he's really special. I think I think all all the I, like you said, I think the cut dancers, they're not just uh, even though you don't really learn their names as an audience member, unless you know the show or look through the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all really have structured and crafted parts. And not to mention, as a performer, and you probably know this, Jeffrey, 
without them, they are the steel spine of a chorus line, the performers. Ugh. Like, without them, you won't have the vocal support for a lot of the numbers because the dancing is so intense. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's so physically exhausting. You may need to call out. And these these cut dancers know two, three, four parts. They're so magical and so important. And if you're somebody who's new to doing the show... I highly recommend doing a cut dancer role if you can, because you get to learn so many tracks at once that you actually get to know the show better and faster than someone who is on the line only doing one track. It's uh, it's that really awesome training for a performer. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. I love that. Okay, let's go to Paul before we run out of time. Yeah, before we run out of time. But Paul San Marco may be mm-hmm. the most important character in the piece and one of the most important characters in all of musical theater history. Mm-hmm. His story mm-hmm. is based on Nicholas Dante, yep. who was at the original tape session, and but wasn't in the show because he mm-hmm. ended up writing the script along with James Kirkwood. Mm-hmm. Can you briefly tell us his story? It's uh, yeah. He tells it in a really long monologue. Actually, he spends most of the, the show not knowing how to share his story. Exactly. And then once he does, it's, I mean, how many pages is that thing? Uh, it's supposed to be like an eight minute monologue less or less. Uh, it's about two pages, but it's just, there's no one else talking. So it's just a block paragraph of him talking. Right. right. Um, so it's, it's a lot of text. It's dense. And funny enough, he's kind of the one you get the most information about in the show. So if you've seen the show, you actually know probably more about Paul than you know about any other character. That's fair. Cause he gives you his entire life. And, and like you said, I think nowadays people probably gravitate maybe more to Cassie or, or as, as being like the heart of the show. But at the mm-hmm. time, the, Paul was groundbreaking to have someone talk about homosexuality and music and commercial musical theater in a non uh, comical way. You know, like it was very yeah. just matter of fact. This is this is the life of a gay person. And to have the simple staging of him on stage just saying his story it was uh, it was very moving and and eye opening for the culture at the time. And um, you think of how long the show ran, how many audiences right came to, to it. Yeah. You know, it's not just the fact that it was; it's the fact that it was in front of so many mm-hmm. people and internationally as well. You know, that story got translated and, and shared around the world. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's re- it's really special. It's also one of my favorite lighting cues. This is like a little technical thing. Oh my gosh, go. Uh, <laughs> it, it's one of my favorite lighting cues of the show. Um, you basically just set a fade from uh, the full stage lights to the spot that is on Paul. So at the mm. top of the monologue, full stage lights, reality. He's in, in the interview. By the end of the monologue, you haven't even noticed the transition, but he's in a solo spotlight and the rest of the stage is dark. Wow, um, as an As an audience member, it's... It's so beautiful. And as a performer, it is so helpful because you literally feel the world disappear around you as you get lost in the story. Um, It's brilliant, brilliant and so simple. Anyway, yes, Nicholas Dante, uh, a touching story of of a man who is trapped between a lot of worlds. He is Puerto Rican, but doesn't look Puerto Rican. He is a dancer, but he hasn't really had the big breaks to be uh, to make it his full-time career. He has had a lot of hurdles uh, to get over in order to feel like a man, but he also knows that he really is at home in, in his drag life, you know? He's mm. stuck between a lot of worlds, and there's a lot of conflict. One of the misconceptions about the monologue, of course, is that this is his, his turmoil about being gay. It's not about being gay. It's about him uh, coming into his manhood and finding uh, where he belongs. And That's true. He doesn't seem to have much shame about his sexuality. No, and he even says it in, very early on in the monologue. He says, uh, 
you know, I always knew I was gay, but that but that didn't really bother me. What bothered me was that I didn't know how to be a man. You know, that's that is his real issue. He needs this job. So why does he need this job? It, it's he needs a place to belong. And uh, I think one of my favorite things about Nicholas Dante and uh, in the tape sessions, when he tells this story just about verbatim as it is in the show, it is one of the funniest pieces in the entire tape session. People are really? laughing. He is a comedian. He has he is such a showman and is able to tell this story with so much heart and, and uh, humor. I think that's also a part of who Paul is. You know, there's a lot of heartbreak in this, but this man, he wouldn't have been able to survive if 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 he was crying every day about this. You know, because um, yeah, we think of that really, as such a tragic moment. Yeah, but he really he really is a funny entertainer as well, and and so that's what I think is so magical about this role. It, there's there's so much you can do with it. You have so much history to build on that's in the text, and you can really even with that you can pick so many different ways to present it. Um, it's it's a really special role to me, and and one of the first real roles for Latinos to really take center stage, wow. and uh, and even though. Uh, the original production used a lot of non-Latino actors. Nowadays, it really is a landmark Latino role for any male Latino in, in the business. One thing that I want to add here real quick, Sammy Williams, who mm-hmm. sweet, sweet guy who mm-hmm. <clears throat> originally played Paul and won a Tony for it, right before they started the first workshop, he sprained his back and was out mm. the entire workshop. Mm. And so he wasn't able to to dance at all. And it seems like the book writers like Nicholas Dante and, and James Kirkwood Jr. and even Michael Bennett, watching him in pain just kind of sit there while everybody mm. dances was really kind of the inception for this idea for Paul to get injured at the audition. And, yeah. and it is kind of the, the climactic moment of the show right. uh, when Paul gets injured because we all know that his career is probably over. Right. And because there's such a part of dancers stories, like everyone, everyone who was a dancer understood that, that when something like that happens, that's it. You know, if it's bad enough, it's over. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the stakes are really high. And what Michael Bennett actually did in the workshops, he knew he wanted this scene in the show. And so he only informed Bob Avian that he was doing this. Uh, Bob Avian, who was his assistant through many productions, uh, it was the last day before a break in the workshops, and Michael said, I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to pretend to fall and hurt myself and break my ankle or, or whatever injury, and I want all of you to take notes as to what is happening on stage. So he goes up there, demonstrates the combo they're working on. He falls, pretends he has a huge injury. Bayark panics. She runs out and gets wet paper towels for God knows what reason. She says she, <laughs> it was her only instinct was to get some wet paper towels wet for paper some reason. Wet paper towels. <laughs> um, and everyone had the reactions, which you see in the show. You have Judy yeah. Turner vomiting in the corner. You have people who are ready to help. You have people who do, don't move a muscle. Mm-hmm. You, so many different reactions to how this moment uh, needs to be handled. And then... Michael, after everyone got their reactions out and the scene played out, he said, okay, everybody, now write down what you did and remember that for next time. We're putting it in the show. (laughs) Um, And that that was the creation of the accident scene. That's Uh, why we love Michael Bennett and hate him all at the same time. We love some Michael Bennett manipulation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I mean, so a lot of it was really authentic to what you see in the show. 
and just credit to Michael for coming up with the the craziest ways to get authenticity uh, in the creation of this show. It's really nuts. Totally nuts. <laughs> um, anything else you want to say about Paul or the show in general? Um, I guess I, I just want to say, you know, after spending a year and a half kind of without the arts, you mm. know, I think the show is more important than ever. I, I think of what I did for Love, which was, yes, a commercial hit and its reason for being created. It was to to go on the radio. But the number is really about us needing to do this and this art form that, that makes us who we are. Our, you know, our, our identity is in this art form. And we've missed a lot of it over the last year and a half. And I cannot wait to see this show up again because it is the reason for why we do what we do. It's it's our story. And to return to our story after the pandemic is just going to be such a beautiful thing and makes me love this show even more. <laughs> Whew. Making me cry over here. <laughs> That's it's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. One of the very best ways you can help the podcast is by leaving us a nice review. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at a musical podcast for more great content. We also have Patreon exclamation point, where for only $1 a month, you can help fund the regular show and receive exclusive content as a thank you. In fact, we'll have a special episode with J. Elaine Marcos for the Patreon fam this next week. And speaking of our guests for this episode, I'm so so grateful. I was definitely on a high after spending a week talking to them, each one unique and incredible, just like every dancer on the line. Caitlin Carter is a driving force at the new and ranking scholarship program, so go to offthelane.org to learn about it or donate. I will, of course, be putting all of this in the show notes. Stephen Hack is always making TV appearances, which you can look through on his website, www.stephenhack.com, or on his Instagram, at Stephen Hackter. That's funny. I see what you did there, Stephen. J. Elaine Marcos is very active on social media, at J. Elaine Marcos, on both Instagram and Twitter, as is the awesome Eddie Gutierrez, on the IG, at Eddie.ology. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you to everyone who adds to the legacy of the show. And remember, if you're going to do it, you better do it for love. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.